Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Are courthouses more likely than some other places to attract paranormal parasites? Why did a plumber in England in 1953, year I was born, uh, look up to see Roman soldiers marching by? Do people unknowingly create paranormal entities? Hello and welcome to the 915th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno, coming to you from WON, AM, and FM radio here in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, on the Paranormal Radio app from TalkStream Live and on TuneIn.com. I am Ben, and those varied questions uh, came from my co-host and partner in Paranormal Adventures and Dad, Paul. Today we uh, bring you an open line show with a new guest co-host. Making her debut as a guest co-host today is Valerie, Valerie Lafaso. Valerie is an empathic medium, a Reiki master and teacher, and a couple of things I can't pronounce, uh, a paranormal and UFO investigator, and author of the Tangled Web of Friends Young Adult Paranormal Fiction Series. She has appeared on the show as a guest, mostly most recently on March 28th, and as a panelist many times in the past when we've done live broadcasts from uh, various uh, UFO functions. Check out her, her Facebook page at facebook.com, Valerie Lofaso, L-O-F-A-S-O. So, Valerie, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal, and uh, happy first time as a guest co-host. Thanks so much, Ben. I'm so excited to be here with you and Paul, and cannot wait to see where this conversation takes us today. Oh, be careful what you wish for. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, anyway, let us uh, let us proceed. Yes, yes, uh, please okay. hand, hand me the question. Oh, that's a big one. Uh, this is a big one. This is from none other than Peter Shelley, uh, another guest co-host who uh, started out as a mysterious questioner from Bogota, Colombia, and he has uh, been sending in uh, excellent questions ever since. So you can, um, a lot of it is a quote from a, something else, but go ahead. Mm. Okie dokie. I guess we'll uh, start... <laughs> Right at the very beginning. Um, so, Paul, Ben, Valerie, I would like to get your comments and ideas on a case which I found absolutely, quote-unquote, gobsmacking, uh, as the British would say. Uh, the Harry Martindale uh, Phantom Roman Soldiers case, uh, which occurred in 1953 at the Treasurer's House in York, England. Um, so, we will read... Actually, it doesn't... The print's very big, so it looks a lot <laughs> scarier than it does. That's so, we'll just... We'll just uh, yeah. Well, it's get, pretty get scary right. when you read it. That's it. Well, maybe. Maybe it's scary. Maybe it isn't. So anyway, uh, so this is from Wikipedia. Um, the most notable haunting uh, is by a group of Roman soldiers who have been witnessed in the cellar. <laughs> what are they doing in the cellar? Uh, firstly, by a, a party guest of Frank Green, and then many years later during uh, restoration works carried out by the National Trust. In 1953, local 18-year-old apprentice plumber Harry Martindale uh, was repairing pipework in the cellar. The National Trust, having decided to remove the coal-fired uh, central heat- heating installed by Green, uh, after about four hours of work at the top of his ladder, Martindale became aware of a musical sound resembling a series of repeated single trumpet-like notes. Uh, the sound grew in intensity until just below uh, his ladder. Martindale reported that he saw Roman soldiers wearing a uh, a sorry, uh, sorry a single soldier wearing a plumed hat uh, emerge from the wall 
followed by a cart horse and about nine or ten pairs of other Roman soldiers. Uh, Martindale fell, terrified from his ladder, and stumbled in a, into a corner to hide. The soldiers appeared to be armed legionnaires, uh, visibly uh, visible only from the knees up in a marching formation, uh, but were quote-unquote scruffy. Uh, they were distinctive in three ways. They carried round shields on their left arms, uh, they carried some kind of dagger and a scabbard on the right side, uh, and they wore green uh, tunics. When they descended to the level of, of the Roman road, uh, on which Martindale had stood <laughs> his ladder, uh, he was able to see that uh, they wore on open sandals with leather straps to the knees. Uh, the experience so frightened Martindale that... <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, that it was several weeks before he returned to his job as a plumber. Uh, now, see, if I was his general contractor or project manager, I'd say, I don't care if there are... <laughs> if, Roman if, soldiers or not. I don't care if Hadrian himself is there. You're going to get that done because we have a schedule to keep. We might not run into too many Roman soldiers in Massachusetts as it is. You never know. Uh, many years later, excavations in the city revealed that the descriptions of the uh, sol- soldier's dress uh, given by Martindale, at first dismissed as anomalous, in fact matched those of local reserve soldiers who took over uh, the Roman garrisons when the regular soldiers began returning to Rome in the 5th century. Yeah, sounds about sounds about right, you know, right after Hadrian's Wall all that stuff. Mm. Uh, during the course of his long life, Martindale uh, recounted his experience many times, uh, but he never changed any of the details and always refused any payment. Well, that's interesting. Uh, I have a lot of background on that because I've looked into that case. But, Valerie, let's uh, honor you uh, for your first time here and throw that right in your lap. All right. I mean, for me, I think the most poignant part of the story is where they are able to validate his experience. You know, they at first dismissed it because of, you know, the costume sounded ridiculous, you know, but then they were able to, to validate his experience. And, you know, whenever somebody like myself as a medium is, is trying to pass along information, you know, coming from somewhere unknown, it's so easy to dismiss those things. But when you have details that are otherwise unknown or, you know, so obscure, you know, that, that really brings a lot of credibility to the story, and I find that that brings, you know, a lot of validity to what, what this man experienced. I, I think it's really interesting. It's a really interesting case. And, uh, go ahead, Ben. Oh, no, you, you're about to say something. Well, no, I just wanted to point out, uh, to add some background to it. Um, he is not the only fellow who has seen these Roman soldiers. Now, I've heard had uh, contact with people when I've been there, particularly in 1989, with people who claimed... Now, I've never been in Yorkshire, but I talked to people from Yorkshire who said that they they had known people who had seen something very similar or the same soldiers, okay? Um, and it, one, of the, one of the points is, from the knees up, that's because the Roman road was about th- two to three feet below the level of that basement. That was later found out. Uh, so they would have been marching on this Roman road, you know, presumably, if this is legit. There have been Roman soldiers seen in uh, Canterbury, uh, in other parts of, of England, and of course, the south of Hadrian's Wall, which was essentially the border between England and Scotland, uh, Rome ruled for several centuries, and uh, there were Roman villas, uh, there were... Uh, the, 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 the baths... In, at, in at, Bath. At, in Bath that you and I saw, and you said... 
everything's lit here. No wonder the Romans are all crazy. You know? I was I was really sad that I didn't get any credit when that was actually posited as a theory for one of the reasons why the Roman yes. Empire fell. Like I think it was only like a couple of years ago, and someone was like, "Oh yeah, there was lead and pewter." <laughs> and yeah, was, everywhere you looked, there was lead in Bath. But in any case. Uh, that that's just sort of background that this is not an isolated incident. It is only I think probably the best known. Now, from our point of view, uh, you've got very physical soldiers. As a matter of fact, in his, in his description of these, they were totally solid. You couldn't see through them or anything else. And in our opinion, uh, if our multiverse theories are correct, that's a, that would be a classic kind of a time slip. And uh, you might also have. Somebody pointed out that the round shields were not, as you mentioned, Ben, were, were not that um, carried by Roman soldiers at the time in that place, but of course that was later found to be incorrect. But if the multiverse thing is true and all possible outcomes are there, uh, this could have been uh, from an alternate world where in our timeline it didn't take place. They could have been carrying feather pillows to fight their enemies in pillow fights. I mean, you know, I mean, it sounds silly, but I mean, it, if, if it can be conceived, it exists somewhere in the multiverse. Is that a veiled reference to Gary Larson and the Wimpedites? Yeah, well, nobody knows what that means. That's so. a good point. All right. So let's go easy on the listeners for once. So <laughs> so in, in any case, I think it is a fascinating case. One of the, the strange things I saw myself in Wistman's Wood, which is at sort of the other end of the country from there, it's in Devon, uh, England, as opposed to Yorkshire, uh, at Wistman's Wood in 1989 when I was there. Uh, Wistman's Wood is a very, very odd uh, and, and fascinating place. There, there are ancient, ancient oak trees, some of which are estimated to be something like 1,200 years old, some of them. But they're only about uh, seven feet high. So they're, they're, a lot of them are just, just sort of barely above your head. And supposedly, the, the last of the Druids in that part of England hid there from the Romans, because the Romans, the Druids were actually, they actually get a bum rap. I mean, they, uh, they didn't practice human sacrifice, except if somebody who was a criminal, they had capital punishment. It's not like the Romans didn't. And, and they, they would uh, occasionally, you know, make a big production out of that. But the Romans didn't like it. Uh, they thought it was human sacrifice, and they uh, chased the Druids out of the place, and they hid in that part of England, in, the, in that that woodland. It has a very strange crystal vein, vein of crystal that goes right through the middle of it. And the, you can see it. It's right on top of the ground. So I'm standing there. I look up, and there is a, a man. He, he wasn't more than 20 feet away, all dressed in furs with a fur hat. And I couldn't see anything below his waist. And he wasn't like coming out of the ground. He was like right there. So um, he turned and kind of looked right through me, and I said, you know, and, you know, I, I was kind of, you know, by '89, I was used to just about anything weird. I'd seen poltergeists and all, you name it, for decades. But uh, this was really, it wasn't scary. It was just really strange. I was, you know, where the heck is the rest of his body? But of course, with time slips and this kind of thing, that that's what happened. So maybe it was the sort of thing this fellow experienced in 1953. So, um, but be that as it may, thank you, Peter, for writing um, and, and another excellent question, as you always do. And uh, why don't we move on? Uh, Valerie, any further comments before we leave that subject? Um, not so much on that, you know, just the, the potential, you know, residual nature, you know, the, the cluelessness of, of the soldiers, you know, they're not seeing the living, supposedly living person witnessing them. 
Um, I had a, I did a clearing recently for somebody who was experiencing people, men, women, and children walking through her home um, on a, a former orange grove. And she said that it seemed residual, except every now and then one or two of them would stop and look at her. And yeah, I thought exactly. that was very interesting. I'd never heard that before. Well, you got to hang around with us more. We, we um, run into that a lot. People who think we're ghosts haunting them because they see us in our terms through the membrane and we look spooky and glowing and all that and instead of what we actually look like. And that was exactly what I thought of, you know, if if they're, you know, you know, some of us are able to more easily see these, you know, spirits or whatever coming through the veil, you know, maybe some of them are able to see us, but not all of them. So I, I found that very fascinating. It is, it is fascinating. Uh, we have a question from Doug from Texas. Doug writes in uh, now and then. Okie dokie. And Doug writes to us, uh, given the vast amount of negative emotions experienced in a courthouse, do you think that courthouses could uh, be potential breeding grounds for parasites? I've always felt a negative energy in such places. Uh, interested in your thoughts about courthouses and potential parasite influence. <laughs> I'm fascinated by the question because uh, Ben's mom is a paralegal for umpteen years and mm. uh, hangs out with all the lawyers and doesn't go to the courthouse very often, but there's a lot of negativity. I mean, Doug really has the point. Uh, Valerie, what do you think of that? I mean, I completely agree that it's it's definitely a place where there's going to be a lot of heightened emotions and especially negative emotions. You think about, you know, what kinds of things go on in courthouses. Of course, it's going to have a lot of negative energy i think soaking into that and i you know i can't help but think of what i think it's the second ghostbusters movie oh yeah um, that's right you know i like that movie house. i'm about one of the about 10 people in the country who like that movie yeah i'm, ghostbusters I'm with you on too. It. yeah a lot of other things takes place in a courtroom but um uh ben uh, any i mean who here's a little fun word association game what's the first thing you think of when you think of a courthouse right like I don't, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's not something good. I don't I don't know anybody who's ever had a good time in a, a courthouse. Quiet herb or something. Well, actually, if you get off of a speeding ticket, that's probably a good thing. But um, I, I don't. I I wouldn't associate anything good. You know, you know, if I if I think of oh geez, I have to go to court, then it's like, you know, I don't think I'd ever be happy about that. I think um, I think a lot of a lot of this is is like you know what we associate with a place, right? You know, it, it comes back to that idea of, um, you know, what we, what we bring to to a, I guess for lack of better words, a space is is what we get out of it. And I I, I think I think when it when it comes to to places, I think we we ascribe a certain value to it. You know, unintentionally, right? You know, you go to a courthouse, you automatically assume, okay, yeah, this is a bad place. You know, bad people come here. Maybe some good people come here, and there's a lot of bad things that happen here, right? You know, whether it's divorce, or there's you know, you know, cases for for people who've committed horrible crimes, or or even something as simple as a land dispute, right? You know, not, nothing good ever comes out of it. Um, maybe some maybe some good stuff does come out of it, but nine times out of ten, you know, you don't associate just on 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 the surface, you don't associate it with anything good. So therefore, what you ex- expect in there, you know, you're going to get right out of it. That's that's. That's kind of where we're going to start there. But you picture any sort of place, right? You know, um, well, whatever you bring to it is kind of what you get out of it. You you go, you know, we live in New England, right? So it's like, oh, there's old cemeteries everywhere. If, if you expect 
a spooky time, you're going to get a spooky time. Or, you know, if you walk in and you're just genuinely interested in history, you're going to have a very interesting experience, right? You know, I live next to a cemetery, like most good old New Englanders. <laughs> and honestly, I'm, you know, I, I find it very comforting because mm. it's like, it's really interesting. Cause the town I live in is really old. They, they just celebrated their 273rd, their 272nd birthday yesterday, I think. And, um, you know, it's an old, old, old town, and it's it's super interesting to like you know look around at all the old graves, and it's just like it's just fascinating, and it's actually kept up with, which is you can't say that for a lot of old cemeteries. Mm. But you know, you 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 look at like a a restaurant, and you don't usually typically associate anything bad with it. You're like, okay, cool, this is a restaurant. You eat here. Sometimes the food's pretty good. Or if you've ever worked in a restaurant, you associate it with horrible, horrible experiences. And it's 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 one of those things where it's like whatever, however we perceive the space, because reality is interpreted entirely through human experience. Unfortunately, you know, as much as we try to say we objectively experience it, that's a lie, because we can't, right? You know, every experience we experience has a subject to it, and we are the subjects that have to interpret the reality around it. So, unfortunately, all of reality is experienced through human experience. So therefore, whatever our perception of the space is, is what we're going to get out of it. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I d- just wanted to point out something from a practical standpoint. If if our ideas on parasites are correct, uh, haunted, quote-unquote, public places can be problematic. Uh, I think that the reasons why many of them are, are considered haunted is because they, they are maybe at... The uh, intersect points or overwash points of multiversal reality where you've got different worlds and you've just got people sharing the same space doing their thing. But with parasites, it's at least in my experience, they have to be in one place with one group of people in order to feed properly, all right, regardless of the species. But in a public place, you've got people coming and going all the time, not necessarily the same people except maybe the judges and the lawyers. So here's a here's a counter question. All right. What makes a space sacred? Okay. Well, I I think that it, it's the presence of these very principles, uh, the overwash points, intersect points, the Pennsylvania Triangle that we always talk about. We've been working on since 2016 is um, was considered a sacred place. That hilltop that I love to sit on was considered a sacred place by uh, by the First Nations. And probably because they experience supernatural things there. And now here's a here's a follow up question: Would the, you consider the halls of government to be sacred places? I wish they were. Valerie, what do you think about all that? Yeah, I, I mean, I completely agree with with you. I wish they were more sacred as well. You know, the halls of government. But you know, it definitely is personal belief that makes a place sacred. Um, you know, my own home is sacred to me, but it's not mm. sacred to the you know other people. Um, you know, it, our our belief and our our personal intent, you know, has a lot of power. But sacred places, like you were mentioning, First Nation sites. You know, um, I know a lot of Hawaii. You know, you can't go anywhere in Hawaii without going like stepping on sacred land. Mm. But you have generations of people putting that intent into those places, mm-hmm. which I think creates a lot of powerful energy. No, that, that, I think that that's well put. But, but as far as court, getting back to courthouses, 
uh, you know, I think there are a lot of people coming and going. I think a lot of the negativity there will come from the people themselves. Oh, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna make an, an argument, and it's going to be a fun one. Okay. How much religious language did we hear in the last election? Well, I don't know if I, we have time to get into. We're not going to get into that civil religion. What we're going to what I'm going to say religion. is, how many times did you hear the phrase "the ballot box is sacred"? Uh, I don't remember hearing it at all. Oh, I have. I heard it yeah. a lot of times. All I heard right. it a lot. <laughs> but there's really interesting religious language that's been adopted. And as much as the civil religion seems like it's gone, it's not. Because what makes a religion, right? What makes a religion is something that ascribes meaning. Usually there's a ritual to it. And there's, I'd argue, that the courthouse has rituals involved. Whether it's yeah. it's it's having some sort of, of um, you know, you have the judge, the judge is in his robes, the judge stands and he, he orders reality, right? That's the whole point, right? We're going to go with judgment and we're going to take that, that word and we're going to go with the definition that judging means ordering something to make something right, to put things in order, right? So the judge's whole job is to sit there and to order reality. You know, you have the bailiff come in, all rise. Judge comes in, he sits down, all sit, and then they go through their proceedings, right? So it's 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 a it's a ritual, right? So it's it's this whole this whole thing is to bring about an ordering of reality, right? Where there's realities that meet, yeah. So if that's the whole the whole kit and caboodle, right? Everywhere everywhere's haunted. That's the one thing we say, right? But there are some places that are a little bit more, I guess we'll go with the definition thin than other places, yeah. We'll 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 say that. Some people can do rituals in these sacred sites, yes? Whether it's Native American, whether it's whatever, yeah? Do we, are we all in agreement? Yeah, I guess, yeah, yeah. So if one is doing a ritual in a place that is perceived as sacred, right? Especially if you're doing a ritual, then one would argue that there would be entities that appear in these places probably more likely than in other places, yeah? Yeah, maybe. So if that's the case, I would argue that in a certain sense, these places in which there are, you know, sort of procedures that are followed that that have have such impact not only on on the world around it, but on people's personal lives, right? I would say that that has a tremendous impact, especially in the multiverse. So it could ring the dinner bell for other things. I would I would also argue that in in this sense, it's it's this sort of this this sort of mundane thing, but there's some sort of element to it that's spiritual because nothing's nothing separated, right? All of this stuff kind of happens all at the same time. Mm. It's it's just different layers of how we perceive reality that are are happening all at once. Well, if you ever sue me for exposing you to ghosts and parasites at an impressionable age, we'll get to spend some time in a courthouse and uh, maybe we'll find out. Well, <laughs> then we'll then we'll see Ghostbusters two play out. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> exactly. Valerie, any further comments before we move on? Yeah, you know, I I kind of wonder about, you know, Ben said it's about ordering reality. And what happens when the reality of the majority of the people in the room conflict with somebody else in the room? You know, one person's right is another person's wrong, you know, type of reality. That's going to escalate the energy as well yeah. when you're when you have competing realities. And I, I think that's happening more and more these days. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, mm-hmm. you can certainly see that in a courtroom. 
when I was a reporter, I covered court cases and stuff. Right. That's why it's you know it's I, it's awful that it's left to humans to try and judge this stuff. Well, yeah, but that's another issue. Yes, yes, that's a different different thing for a different day. But right. I, I I just wanted to throw that out there. Let's take one that's left over from a, a show we and we didn't get to it. Uh, this is from April in uh, North Smithfield, Rhode Island, right in our listening area. Mm. Oh, yeah. We never did get this one. Um, so April writes to us, Paul, it was really interesting uh, to hear you talk about uh, you, the use of music in paranormal investigations. I refer to the strange incidents in Pennsylvania in May of 2019. Uh, I have since listened to the music you referred to uh, by Morton Lauderson. And uh, it is really haunting. Do you think that this helps stimulate the phenomena you all experienced that night? Do you have any other examples of investigators attracting phenomena as uh, with music? Well, that's the question. If people want to look back uh, on BehindTheParanormal.com or iTunes or somewhere to the show from uh, May 25th, 2019, you'll be able to hear that and and see the UFO video, because oh, that's now on YouTube, on our YouTube channel, and hear the tone that we heard that next day, uh, all very strange things. And uh, Shane Searway was using tones, he was playing tones just sort of out into the environment uh, that had been recorded at Mount Shasta, and I was playing, uh, not at the same time, uh, music from uh, Morton Lordson, the uh, American composer who... Uh, writes very haunting music, as the uh, as as April said. Uh, so, I think since we had things happen that generally hadn't happened there previously, I think that maybe the music stimulated. Valerie, have you ever heard of that uh, music used in cases to um, further communication or insight or anything? Or have you ever done that yourself? I haven't done it myself. I've I've certainly seen it done a lot on you know some of the the TV paranormal shows. Oh really? Um, yeah. I don't um, watch those. So so what shows where have they done that? I think it was um, Kindred Spirits with Amy Bruni and and Adam Berry. I believe I've seen them do it where they were in a home um, and there was something to do with music and I, I believe they had that music similar music playing it to try really? to stir up activity and I I believe they had some some things happen. Well, I, I have to point. I wasn't trying to stir up. I, I mean, you don't have. You generally have to stir up anything, at least in our cases. And I would never try to do that or, or provocation of any kind. Ne- I would never suggest that. Uh, but just um, sort of to. Um, I, I think that these are sacred experiences. Maybe I'm. We do have that native blood that. Uh, supposedly from the 1600s. I don't know. Everybody in New England does. You too, I think, Valerie. To some extent, yeah, I probably do. Yeah, uh, there is a sense of of the sacredness of the land, and I think that the music, as I was playing, it was meant to enhance the sacredness of the experience, and I think it did in that case because because those to me were very sacred experiences that happened to us. You know, the UFO encounter, uh, the Bigfoot encounter previously. And then the tone, if that was part of the UFO encounter, uh, we don't know, but, you know, we all experienced it. So um, sometimes, you know, you get to a certain age and, and, you know, you've done the analyzing, you've come to your conclusions, you know, you, you admit maybe you're wrong, maybe somebody else is right. But you just want to savor the experience because you're getting near the end of your life. And, and it's, a, it's a holy thing. And the more holiness that you can experience in life, I think the better you are. Whether it's in church, out of church, no church, you know, whatever, you know, 
So that's just my opinion. So I, I think that that certainly played out in that case. Now others have other opinions, but um, yeah, I think we'd like to hear from any listeners who have uh, feel that, that that music has stimulated any kind of uh, phenomena or contact or good or bad. I think we'd like to hear about that. Now I think if if, if I had I played heavy metal or hard rock, I don't know if um, the same positive experiences would have resulted. I was involved once in an experiment with plants, this is a hundred years ago, uh, where they, they seem to grow better to um, the classics and to soft music and, and uplifting music, and uh, they would tend to kind of curl up and die when they... When and not necessarily die, but they would they would uh, not respond as well to some of the more modern, uh, less uplifting music. Hmm. Interesting. It make, so, makes sense to me. It's it's energy. Yeah, you know, exactly. Creating energy and you know the heavy metal music. You know, I have no issues with it. It's not my thing, but it does have a, a certain message to it that maybe isn't as positive as classical music might have with it, and that would bring about another kind of energy. So it makes sense to me. So uh, I intend to use that again. Maybe next time we'll try a Scottish bagpipes mm. and uh, see how that works. But uh, It's about time for a break. It is indeed. We're talking about music and we lose track of time. Anyway, you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno with our special guest co-host today, Valerie LaFaso, on WOON 1240 AM, 99.5 FM, in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. And we'll be right back with more questions from you. So stick with us. The night is alive. Join us and take a walk on the weird side when you tune in to The Kingdom of Nye, hosted by Heather Wade, the finest in late night talk. Listen live free weeknights starting at 9 p.m. Pacific time at thekingdomofnigh.com, talkstreamlive.com, and the Paranormal Radio app. Wanna take a ride? Local and live at 99.5 FM. The Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno, and today. I did? Yes. Well, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. Sometimes I, I forget that you can't hear the things I can hear. You let me do this or not? You were supposed to be. You're supposed to read my mind. Okay. Okay. Anyway, welcome back, and uh, we're having an open line show today. We're going to be talking uh, with Valerie Lafasso as well, our special guest co-host, as part of helping helping us answer these very good questions and deep ones from our listeners. So, what do we have next, there, Ben? Mm, yes, we have Eric from Lincoln, Nebraska, who has written to us. Uh, I have listened with interest as you described how paranormal events don't just happen to people as passive observers. We participate in them, and that sometimes people in the same place will experience different kinds of sightings or other phenomena. Uh, I also heard you talk about tulpas or thought forms. My question is, do people, at least in some cases, actually create the entities they see or hear? Uh, how does that work? Question mark. And uh, does it hold true for, as Paul would say, garden variety ghosts like loved ones? What about aliens? If I see my great-grandfather standing at the end of my bed one night, how much of him is him and how much is me? Well, that's a really good question, Eric, uh, and I've thought of that many times. Um, one of the things we always say, and Ben just said it in the course of the show here, was we think you have the experience or get out of it what you bring to it because uh, we participate in the, and I've even expressed the opinion that when you're having a paranormal experience or encountering, encountering an entity 
you're half in their world, they're maybe half an hour, you know, something like that. Mm. So, uh, Valerie, how would you answer that question from Eric? Um, it, it's definitely something I've thought quite a bit about, you know, encountering energies as I do. Um, you know, I'm, I'm always wondering what is the truth of what I'm experiencing. You know, I, I'll be having dinner with somebody and their, you know, deceased uncle will show up with a message. I wonder, okay, is this really the deceased uncle or is this just some sort of energy force that does need to pass on this message and the uncle is the best way to do it? Um you know, th- this person was in need of that. Did he draw that energy to him? Probably. Um, you know, there's there's so many unknowns still around all of this stuff. Um, I, I do believe we, we draw in a lot of the experiences um, and shape a lot of it. You know, the people who are only looking for demons are going to find, find, you know, dark activity you know but i could go into the same location not looking for demons and might have a a normal encounter um yeah well this question could range all the way from tibetan monks who uh create topas or separate beings as a thought or a spiritual exercise all the way to the uh the modern parapsychological interpretation of a poltergeist uh, where the, the, in the case of the Bridgeport House in 1974, the little girl Marcy, because of her stress, I mean, created a poltergeist. Uh, it seems like the same sort of mechanism, you know. Hmm. But I don't really believe any of that. Like, you know, I don't accept most of the, the normal approaches to these things. I think that um, in the case of... And I, I think I've seen this happen. Uh, people um, attracting parasites that, that will act... Even in the exorcism cases I was involved with in the 70s, I got the, the strict impression that these things were playing us for fools, were feeding off what we were doing, and were pretending to be the demons of folklore and acting the part. And there were little hints and clues that they were almost like laughing at us, that, that this really wasn't what was happening. And uh, so, again, I think, it, it's as Valerie said, there's a lot we don't know uh, these things may appear to be some things and not others. Uh, there have been experiments. Uh, I remember one in Ontario, Canada. I was in contact with one or two of the people involved uh, many years ago, in the 70s also, where they were literally uh, came up with a, a figure uh, who was fictitious, drew a picture of him, and they uh, actually uh, got around in a circle, almost like a seance in reverse, and created this person who then uh, continued to uh, create phenomena, moved objects, and was even photographed. Uh, and the, the, the idea was, you know, this is some guy, the ghost of some guy who had lived in, uh, I believe it was the, the 17th century, and uh, this happened to him, that happened to him, executed by some monarch or other, and uh, the thing became real, at least is to that them. known as the Conjuring Up Philip? Is that, that, that was the, there was to? the Philip and there was another one, I can't remember the name of it, which was also in Canada, there was a woman. And they actually got a photograph of her too. So yeah, that, that's a famous case and uh, it seems to be a sort of a thought form conjuring or, uh, as often happens with tulpas in the case of the monks, they get out of, out of control and they, they can't be controlled and some llama has to come in and fix everything if they can. Uh, it just has parasite written all over it. You, know, you ring the dinner bell and someone's going to come in and act the way it wants to in order to eat. Uh, I don't think it's maybe every case, 
But the whole thought form thing, if nothing else, reinforces the idea that we participate in, in the, uh, we're not just passive uh, recipients of paranormal phenomena. So it's a very good question, Eric. I don't know. Ben, what do you think of it? Um, I have thoughts. And the thoughts. Well, as long as you don't have thought forms here in the studio, <laughs> too much to do. Can't promise that. Um, so I, I think it's, I think it is really interesting because, um, you know, the, the concept that I've kind of been working with personally is that we work with the data we have, which really isn't a ton. Um, mm-hmm. But one thing I do know is we all like to participate in something, right? You know, we, we all like to be a part of, of something, wh- whatever it is, right? Whether it's a, a religion, some, you know, some sort of hobby you really as- ascribed to, say you really like flying model planes and you join a group for flying model planes, you know, we all want to be a part of something, right? And that, that doesn't just include hobbies or, or religious beliefs. It includes life. We want to be a part of a story, right? You know, and ghost stories are a part of that. And it's, it's, you know, whatever our ancestors had as their spiritual experiences are now interpreted as ghost stories or UFO experiences. It's, um, it's, it's, it's the modern day version of that, right? You know, this is mythology. It's a story we participate in. And, you know, it's like if you take somebody from, I'm curious if this, if, if it would ever have happened like this, you know, you t- if someone's on the Silk Road and you take a merchant from China and toss them into Athens and they run into Pan, one wonders what they'll interpret the experience to be or vice versa, right? You know, it's, um, we work with the data we have and, you know, you walk into a case, you're, you're there, you're, you're, I'm going to exercise the spirits, and you 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 find something there, and it, it fits the definition of the data you have, whatever your rubric may be, and it's like okay, cool, checks all the boxes. This is what it is. It's it's the data that we have to work with, which isn't a ton, and you know perhaps we do make our own thought forms, right? I for one, I think a lot, but we all do, right? And I I'm I'm increasingly becoming more and more. <laughs> skeptical of the idea i think therefore i am because i think that we are not our thoughts therefore i think that if thought forms are indeed a thing then they don't come from us they come from somewhere else um you know how many times have you had an intrusive thought right you know you're you're at the mall and you're holding your phone over the edge of the third floor and you get a little thought in your head that says throw that phone drop it (laughs) or or you're in a car and you suddenly get a thought of i should just jump out while it's moving and it's i think i think that thoughts don't don't so much come from us but they kind of happen to us and we have the ability to engage with it or not and i think the same would go for a thought form and i and perhaps you know if you're if you're in your bed and you've experienced something and you're expecting something to happen you know whether it was you know some sort of ufo experience or 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 poltergeists or something Something will step into that role of that of that quote unquote thought form. Something will step in and act out the part, right? Whatever the yeah. rubric is that we have to interpret the experience from, something will step in to interpret it. Whatever that something may be, whether it's a parasite or, or some other benign entity out there, something will 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 take take on the 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 data that we have and will interpret it as such. Because that's really all, all we really have is interpretation, which is informed by what? Our experience. Yeah, uh, there are um, examples of, uh, for example, Jeff the Talking Mongoose. We did a really fun show. Oh, man, I love Jeff. 2019 with, 
with uh, Tim Swartz, one another one of our stable of guest uh, co-hosts, and <clears throat> it was uh, they, there was this really a mongoose in uh, rural England in the 1930s who was uh, talking and um, you know telling the family what was going on and this sort of thing, or was it some kind of uh, parasite or, or something else? And uh, was this thought form created by the little girl? And uh, I, I don't know, just uh, very little is known about these things, uh, but they're except for the examples. There seem to be plenty of examples of these things. We work with the data we have. We do. Uh, Valerie, any more thoughts before we move on? Yeah, I mean, I, I both disagree and agree with a lot of what Ben said. You know, I disagree with our thoughts not being us or creating our reality. I, I think that we have a lot of control over our thoughts and those intrusive thoughts as soon as he said, you know, they're coming, you know, these thoughts are coming in, he's probably picking up on someone else's energy and taking it on as, as his own. Um, a lot of a lot of people, and especially somebody who might be empathic, you know, they, they pick up on other people's thoughts. Like, you might not be road raging, but the person in the car next to you is road raging, and suddenly you're, you find yourself really angry. And if you're, you don't know to look around and, and, energetically feel into that you might think it's you know just yourself being erratic um and now i forgot what i agreed with him on <laughs> that's well, fair. well we, we will have to do a separate show with you too in the uh, duel of the empaths so yeah. <laughs> yeah but in any case uh the thought forms uh it's an open question and eric uh, thank you for the excellent uh, question he did before we leave that though he did mention the word aliens in there too as a possible you know, we participate in that experience as well. Now, uh, one of the great things and the, the many great things about Valerie is, is that she's experienced many of these things and has studied UFOs uh, as well as uh, the empathic thing and, and the, the ghost scene and all this. And so she's a pretty well uh, uh, Renaissance person when it comes mm. to that. So um, what do you think uh, having uh, – I, I don't want to speak for you, but I, I believe you've had, you know, experiences uh, in the UFO realm as well. What um, are your impressions about how we participate in that, you know, in the spirit of Eric's question? Yeah, I mean, I, for a very long time, I assumed ETs and UFOs were very physical experiences until I really started to learn how to use my intuition. And then I started encountering them in a very similar way to encountering, you know, what we perceive as human spirits and, you know, the lines start to get really blurred, you know, where does a human ghost end and, and you know, off-world ET begin? Are they really different or is it just something that we are perceiving in a certain way for a reason? Um, you know, these, these are things I think about all the time because I've had very physical encounters, but I've had very spiritual encounters. And so it seems like there, there may be a little of both going on. Um, and I certainly think that they have a, a bigger ability to do things in the spiritual realm that we are searching for but don't quite understand yet, if that makes any sense. Well, plenty of fodder for questions from the listeners for the next Open Line show. Obviously. There's a lot, <laughs> lot to this. Okay, I think we uh, probably have time to get in depth into one more, Ben. Sure. Um, I guess we'll, we'll hop right into Carrie from North Smithfield. Uh, here in Rhode Island. Uh, so Carrie writes to us, 
Uh, I heard you once say that ghost hunters might have an effect on their own instruments. I once saw a ghost hunting show, and the guys were asking the ghost to show um, if he was there by raising or lowering the temperature of the room, and the temperature did change. If they uh, did that themselves without knowing it, uh, how could they do that? You know, that, that's a good question. Uh, I, I think of that and also... You know, there are all sorts of instruments they use that, that are primarily engineers' tools. There are, um, you know, even sensors, motion sensors, uh, IR motion sensors. and. I'm sorry, there's a second bank. part to the question. I didn't mean to interrupt. Uh, this is a second part, but if you want to tackle that first, I can oh, Okay, okay, well, well yeah. Um, I, I think it's very possible in the, in the vein of our previous discussion about participating in these phenomena, not just being a passive recipient of them, uh, it's very possible. And this has been speculated upon by people in, who do that as hobbies. Maybe they are uh, influencing the, um, the instruments themselves somehow. Um, I don't know, Valerie, you, you have a lot of experience with, with this sort of thing. Do you think the... Uh, participants in whatever is happening can affect the instruments. I think it's possible, although I've tried it and I haven't been able to get it to work myself. Like, you Mm. know, I'll I'll sit at home on my couch with an, you know, the K2 meter trying to get it to light up with my own energy and I can't do it. Um, So I I don't know that it's always that easy. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I would just say we don't use a lot of instruments ourselves uh, we think that um, they, well, I don't know, maybe it's my, my ancient uh, roots in this when it was all seat of the pants and you're lucky if you had a camera, never mind anything else. Um, I, I don't know, I just think that um, the the, the uh, technology, of, when we live in a society that's drunk with technology. We have to take it with a grain of salt, maybe sometimes a pillar of salt, and realize that other influences, you know, for example, an, an electromagnetic field meter can be influenced by uh, a radar array at an airport 10 miles away, you know, that sort of thing. So I think it, it needs to be taken in context. It, I'm sure it has a use, but uh, I don't know. People shouldn't take it as gospel, I, I shouldn't say. And I think people can. It, we do influence our environments in many, many different ways. Mm. And I think that these could be included. We just don't know for sure, Ben. So there was a French filmmaker named Lumiere, and he was famous. He was one of the first directors ever with motion pictures to do editing and he was a magician and so he would do his tricks and then he would cut the film so he'd you know make a woman disappear by cutting the film and where she was and then splicing it together and boom you know it was magic um which was amazing to audiences at the time like oh how did he do that it was like like the 1890s early 1900s yeah yeah it was uh, it was one of the first sort of sort of experiences with editing and it's it's really significant because it shows you cannot trust TV. Um, <laughs> and I think that that's, that's important to point out because we have to keep in mind it's a ghost TV show. They get their ratings by making things happen. Mm. I think that the evidence is, is suspect because, you know, you, if, if we're going to get hyper-materialistic here, then allow me to put on my materialistic hat and say, if that did happen... I would want someone who's not involved with the show in any way to be there to be an impartial observer, right? Someone who's there who, you know, is making sure that whatever the room is, because there's a lot of information that's left out, is this an old house? Is there heating in the house? Is there cooling in the house? Do we know if it's, if there's, you know, 
let's say, you know, they have a camera poised over the shoulder of the guy and they're not, you know, somehow manipulating the environment, right? You know, there's there there's so many questions I have to show, okay, well, first we need to prove that they're not messing with the room temperature, right? Because TV lies to you all the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's by the time it gets to the audience, it's distilled through so many producers, editors, and people that say, well, we want to make money, so let's just do X, Y, and Z, and boom, done. It's it, We have to keep that in mind. So it's not always a super reliable source. Um, so the second thing with that is, you know, equipment can be faulty too, right? The tools are only as good as the users. And we have to keep in mind that if, you know, if you're not experienced with the tool, again, I don't know how long these guys have been doing this. I don't know what they're working with. I don't know the tool in question that's being used because how would one monitor temperature of a room? You know, you need some sort of thermostat in order to do that or you need something with which to take the temperature of the room. There's, you know, you you have to, the the tool's only as good as as the user. There's there's so many other things. There's a really interesting second portion of the question, which I'll read while we still have a little bit of time, which is, also, what about EMF meters, motion sensors, ghost boxes, and all that? Could they have, uh, or could they be influenced by the users, and how? I'm not sure about this one, one way or another. I'd just like to know your opinion. And it's interesting because um, EMF meters, they can be, if you have a ton of electrical equipment in the room, because essentially it's an engineer's tool to test for electrical leaks. Mm. If, if you have a bunch of electrical equipment in a room, say a ton of camera equipment, and <laughs> say you're working in extreme temperatures and camera equipment and sound equipment do not like extreme temperatures, if you're doing exterior shots or if you have old equipment, or if you know you have lithium batteries and everything, of course it's going to affect the EMF meter. You know, the, you know motion sensors. That's another thing. You know, I've I have a bunch of motion sensor cancers, cameras around my house, and they you know they're influenced by everything, right? You know, a bug flies by, boom. You know, it's it it, it catches it. It's it's crazy. Ghost boxes. I don't trust them only because. Um, you know, I I want I I don't really I'm not really looking for something in it. I've never used one, so I can't verify it, and I'm not interested in using one. Only because it's like I know I'm going to hear what I want to hear. That's 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 what just that's my two cents on that. Because you know I've I've heard people they go on and on about them. Great, cool. If it works for you, lovely. But for me, I just I don't need it. You know, don't really want it. Comments, Valor. Yeah, I, I'm on the same page as, as Ben with all of this stuff. You know, I don't have the knowledge to understand this equipment and how it works and who the operators are and, and all of that. Um, but that being said, you know, I have I have seen some interesting things happen with things like K2 meters, and then other things are happening at the same time. You're getting an EVP. A person in the room is feeling a temperature difference. Like you're having layers of experiences at the same time through multiple pieces of equipment, in, including humans. You know, you know, we are tools as well in these investigations. Um, that to me is the most interesting evidence when there's multiple things happening in different layers. Well, I've actually uh, been with a group of ghost hunters. Not not that which I usually don't do, but not, not that long ago, a couple of years, and they were using a ghost box, and I was trying to keep, you know, keep quiet, not, like, you know, say anything. And uh, the, the, it essentially, uh, so-called ghost box, will cycle through AM frequencies. And uh, supposedly the, the whatever it is that you're trying to talk to will come out, and you'll hear it. 
So finally, I just said, you know, I don't want to rain on the parade here, but what about this, 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 and this? How do you know that's really what you think it is? Do they have an AM transmitter at their end somehow? How do you know I you're mean, not picking up signals from the ionosphere? You're, you're picking up all kinds of and, and it's always done at, at, you know, in the evening when there's a lot of skip in the atmosphere. In other words, uh, you, you could, and this actually happened, you could turn on your radio in northern Norway or Lapland or somewhere and pick up this station. Which has actually happened, you know, if the conditions are right, because a skip, atmospheric skip by the radio signal. So, I mean, I, I just don't, I didn't see any real value to it. I've, I've heard other recordings of things, and maybe there is, I don't know, uh, but I just have serious doubts about it. So I tend to agree with you two about this. Now, just, um, uh, th- we're almost out of time, but just three weeks ago, uh, we were all in New Hampshire mm. uh, at a place we were just, Doing a photo shoot, we did not intend to invest, do any investigation. And all of a sudden, Valerie comes out with, "Oh, there are all kinds of things happening around here." Well, I didn't know that, and sure enough, the EMF meter, you know, goes deep, way deep, as deep as I've ever seen it in the negative range, which means that that the polarity on the electrical field is reversed, which is really strange. And I find, in my in my terms or our terms, would be exchanging energy with a parallel reality. So we didn't, um, we weren't there for that, but you know, I think we might want to go back at some point and check that out. But that's um, just about everything there. So we better get to our announcements. Uh, thank you for everyone who wrote in. We'll, we'll uh, put the questions in the queue for the next uh, the next open land show. Indeed. So on Friday, October eighth, which is this coming Friday, uh, I'll present a paranormal overview at a rather unusual venue, the Arizona Dowsers Conference at the Little America Hotel in Flagstaff. Uh, visit DowsersSouthwest.com for more information. This is an in-person event, and you do have to pay for it, so check it out if you happen to be in Arizona. On Thursday, October 21st at 7 p.m., I'll be back at the Haverhill Public Library in Haverhill, Massachusetts, to present on Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know is Wrong. This is scheduled to be an in-person event, but stay tuned. And we'll uh, present once again at the Western Connecticut UFO Conference uh, during the last week of October this year. On Sunday, the 24th, we'll do a live simulcast with the conference, and this will be an open-line show format with Kathleen Martin taking questions from conference participants and our global audience on the Betty and Barney Hill abduction case, of which 2021 is the 60th anniversary. On the following Saturday, uh, COVID variants permitting, we'll present live at the Danbury, Connecticut Public Library to help wrap up the conference. Uh, other presenters that week will include Mark D'Antonio, Tom Reed, Michael Schrett, uh, Linda Zimmerman, and Mike Panicello from Connecticut MUFON. Now, Valerie, tell us where people can find out about your books, more about you. Um, right now, currently on Facebook, um, under Valerie LaFasso, empath and author. Um, I'm working on a website currently, um, so that will hopefully be up and running within the next few weeks. And I am going to be doing um, a lecture um, on October 30th at the Epsom, New Hampshire Library with our friend Andy Kitt, and it's mm. going to be called The Psychic and the Scientist, Finding the Common and Uncommon Ground. Um, so great. I am one around. Yeah, that's cool. And Valerie is a contributor to our forthcoming book, um, Behind the Paranormal 3, Uneasy Skies. Wrote a really great chapter, and uh, we're going to be looking forward to that coming out next year. So we are... Okay. We'll have, we'll have okay. about a minute. So if you want right. to jump into some stuff, go for okay. it. Okay, I just remind everybody that uh, after uh, centuries of tech problems, all the regular recorded shows, 
uh, for, of this show from CBS uh, Achieve Radio and here on ON 1240 AM and FM have been restored in the archives at BehindTheParanormal.com and many of them <clears throat> are on the usual uh, Suspects podcast platforms, uh, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, etc., etc. So you can check those out and they're all free. And don't forget about our books. You can check those out along with those of our guest co-hosts at our show website, BehindTheParanormal.com, where you can also find out more about the show, our many cases over the years, our public appearances, and how to book us, along with some of our 900-plus pre-recorded shows. So what's in the cooker for next week, then? Oh, we got uh, in the crock pot. It's going and going and going. Um, nothing. Uh, which, because it's October 10th, there will be no show, because WON Radio News is covering uh, the annual local event of Autumn Fest. So the uh, the cupboard is bare until the following week, which is October 17th, uh, when I'll interview you, Dad, uh, as we mark the 50th anniversary of the Village of Voices case in Connecticut. And you were there. <laughs> yes. Uh, and I'm here, too, and we're out of time, I'm afraid, so we'll uh, be talking next week. I'm Paul Eno. I'm Ben Eno. And I'm Valerie LaFasso. Thank you for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we'll see you next time on Behind the Paranormal. Mm-hmm.